please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. We're looking at verses 10 through the end of the chapter, continuing on in these these stories of Samson, some of the most interesting. Um, Let me invite you to stand as I read this for us. We stand uh, just as a way of trying to put as much intentional attention on this passage as we possibly can. And so, uh, yeah, we're standing, and hopefully you have a Bible out and open so you can follow along as I read this for us. So follow along as I read this for us. Judges 14, starting in verse 10. This is referring to Samson's father. Uh, His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there. For so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, came something sweet. And in three days, they, Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard, and and she told the riddle to her people. And And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Please be seated. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for deciding to redeem us. We thank you for those, those words those succinct, definitive words of Jesus that the mission of the Christ is to come and pursue the lost, to seek and save those who need a lot of help, dramatic intervention. You said you didn't come to help the healthy. You came to help the sick, and we all are sick. Whether we are here today and can admit that about ourselves, we're we're in desperate need of being helped and we need to be saved and we need to be shepherded and we're praying uh, we pray now that you would guide us that uh, you would prevail in our life and that your way would be the predominant way we live not our agenda but but your agenda and we ask that you would do that supernatural work in us by the power of the spirit and we ask this in the name of jesus amen So back in January of this year, 2023, I was making my New Year's resolution, and I decided my New Year's resolution this year is going to be watch more TV. Now, I don't want to be braggy. I've been good at watching TV for a long time. 
like when I was little, I watched Smurfs and Scooby-Doo and G.I. Joe and I think He-Man. Pretty sure that was on when I was a kid. And uh, I've, so I've always been pretty decent. But I thought, you know, I could do better. I could do better. I mean, there are still things in my life that, that distract me from TV. Like my kids will come in and have a question and I'll have to sort of pause the show and like interact with them or, you know, there's just like chores I have to do. And so I thought I could, I could really do better. It's going to be challenging, but I can watch more TV. And then as you, as you go along, you know, throughout the year and you're committed to watching more television, uh, you find that, you know, it's, it's not just hard to find the time. It's sometimes hard to find a good show. You know, there's a lot of trash out there. There's a lot of stuff that's just not that great. And it's, it's hard to really commit. Because uh, what you're looking for is a show that will really combine, you know, humor and satire and, and drama, something that will really keep you engaged. And so I'm happy to report that, that as of the last few weeks, I have found a show. It's an older show. It's Suits. I don't know if any of y'all have seen that show. But I find it riveting. Um, and not just because, you know, Meghan Merkel, the Duchess of whatever, is in the show. I mean, it's just all across the board. The acting is amazing. Uh, so if you're unfamiliar, the show is about this law firm in New York City, and as you would imagine, a law firm in New York City, it's highly competitive, it's cutthroat, it's survival of the fittest. And as you, as you get to know the characters in the show, you realize there's a lot of rivalty, uh, rivalries. There's a lot of contentious stuff brewing between the different characters, between the various associates and partners in the firm. And there's a lot of funny interactions, a lot of humorous types of moments in the show. But, but really the thing that draws you and, and keeps you connected and engaged is this simmering hostility, this, this animosity that exists between the characters. And sometimes this, this animus erupts into these dramatic spectacles, these scenes where people are yelling at each other and, and everything is just kind of going off the rails and it's, it's just hard not to be entertained by that. It's really, really captivating television. And I think that's what's happening here in the stories of Samson. Um, the stories of Samson are, are full of these kind of humorous moments, these satirical moments, but, but really throughout it all, there's this drama that's being cultivated, that's being authored. There's this hostility, uh, this simmering animosity that's, that's clearly being cultivated between these various characters, especially here as uh, Samson and his dad are in Timna making the final wedding arrangements and, and preparing for the wedding feast. And all of this drama, the more I think about it in the stories of Samson and just in life in general, I realize more and more that, that all this drama and all this animosity really rises out of this core character flaw, this flaw of feeling threatened. We can all relate to this. We all feel this on some level and in some way. Philistine territory in Timnah, making wedding arrangements. And the Philistines, we read, they, had, they decide to assign some, what it was called, companions, these quote-unquote, companions to be with Samson. Now, nowadays, uh, sometimes a, a bride's uh, brothers will, be, will, sort, will sort of be assigned to, to fill the role of groomsmen. And, and that can be sweet and lovely, and sometimes that's like a little forced, and it can feel awkward and, and weird. Uh, but this is, this is more intense than that. This is more awkward than that. The Philistines, you have to realize, you have to remember, um, they, they are oppressing the Jewish people at this point in time. They absolutely hate, they, they completely disdain the, the people of Israel. And so this Jewish guy, Samson, shows up in their town, the town of Timnah, and he takes a liking to this young woman in their town, and they decide to get married. And so the Philistine community is very, very suspicious 
about this. They, they, are, they are hostile towards Samson. They feel threatened by Samson. They don't know what his agenda is. They don't trust him. And so they decide, we're going to put him under surveillance. So that's what these 30 companions are. If it, if it sounds like overkill, it, it is. They're, they're, they're showing their hand. They're saying, we don't trust you, Samson. You're under surveillance. Then, subsequently, Samson, no doubt, feels threatened. He feels surrounded, obviously. He feels ganged up on and, and boxed in. Now, before we consider various reactions to this phenomenon of feeling threatened and, and surrounded and, and boxed in, first we need to admit something very basic, but very, very important. We need to admit that we all feel threatened. Everybody in this room is deeply, deeply and rampantly insecure. In all kinds of ways. And, and whether you're willing to admit it or not, the fact is you oftentimes, a lot of the time, you feel threatened. You feel very, very threatened. And, and some of you are threatened by me even pointing out the fact that you feel threatened. You, you'd like to think, you know, no, I'm above all that. I'm not petty. I'm not insecure. I've transcended such, such feelings of insecurity. I don't get threatened. Uh, some of you have seen the, the movie, What About Bob? Remember the character, Dr. Leo Marvin? Dr. Leo Marvin is this renowned psychiatrist, and he prides himself. He says, you know, I help people who feel insecure, but I don't struggle with that. And there's this dramatic scene where he's arguing with his daughter, and she's saying, you feel threatened by Bob. You, you feel totally threatened by him, and you feel deeply insecure. And he says, no, I don't. No, I don't. He will not admit it. And we all feel this way. We, we all have this, this deep insecurity about even admitting that we're, that we're very threatened and insecure. Now, some of you are going to say, stop picking on psychiatrists, Dirk. Stop, stop, you know, throwing shade on Dr. Marvin. Okay, I don't mean to disrespect Richard Dreyfuss or Dr. Leo Marvin. So let me, let me aim my scrutiny at uh, people in my vocation, church leaders. Okay, so in the Gospels, we, we see the first church leaders uh, the, the leaders that outrank all the current leaders on the planet, the apostles, okay, so these are the highest ranking human leaders in church history, the apostles, you'd think these, these apostles, these venerable, distinguished leaders, certainly they wouldn't struggle with feeling rampantly insecure and threatened. Well, what does the, what does the Bible tell us? What do the gospels reveal to us? Well, it says the apostles, they spent a lot of time fretting about other people's ministries. There were these other groups doing ministry in the name of the Lord, and they would come back to Jesus feeling very insecure, and they'd say, we don't, we don't like how these people are doing it. Do you want us to shut them down? And Jesus revealed that you're only saying this because you feel threatened. <laughs> they, there's nothing wrong with these other groups. If they're not against us, they're for us. You guys are just so insecure. Remember that scene in the Gospels where James and John come to Jesus asking for promotions? And, and Jesus essentially says, that's not going to happen. And then all the other disciples get indignant with James and John because they feel threatened. They feel threatened by these guys uh, trying to get these promotions. We see this all the time. The, the church leaders, the apostles, they're always arguing amongst themselves which one of them is right, which one of them is the greatest. And that all emanates from this core character flaw where we feel we feel threatened and we got to compensate. So we need to admit this about ourselves. There is this sort of Lord of the Flies, self-protection, survival of the fittest reflex that just wells up in all of us. To cite another movie, Father of the Bride. Remember George Banks when they're going to meet the, the new in-laws, the McKenzies? And, and on the way there, he says to his wife, Nina, oh, man, I bet these, 
these McKinsey folks, I bet they live in the slums. I bet they live in a shack. And then they pull into this gated community. They live in a mansion. And Nina says to her husband, yeah, some, some shack, George. And he says, no, worse. Now we're related to pretentious snobs. Right? Because he just, he just feels so boxed in. He feels so threatened and he doesn't know how to cope and he's not handling it very well. And we're all this way. Husbands, uh, what about when your wife just innocently points out that, yeah, this other guy, he's, he's a smart guy. He's funny. And you say, what, what are you saying? Are you saying I'm not smart? You, you saying he's funnier than me? Right? I mean, somebody makes just a, a benign observation about your life and, and you say, well, what are you suggesting? You're suggesting that I'm not a good parent? Is that what that's about? What's the subtext here? You're very on edge. We're, we're very defensive. You know, I've, I've been in arguments uh, with people before, and they say, oh, well, I guess, I guess you're just saying I'm the worst then. And I was like, no, I, I was just pointing out like one little small thing about your life. Maybe I've been that person myself. This is why we can't offer people gum or a mint without feeling weird. Because they're like, what? Are you saying my breath smells bad? It's so insecure. Pretty much any time you feel defensive or cynical or sarcastic or offended or resentful, uh, it's because you feel threatened. It's because you're really, really insecure. And there's only one way to actually deal with this problem. If, if you actually want to address this and deal with it and, and experience any kind of victory over this, this sin problem in all of our lives, the only way to do it is to follow Jesus. Because number one, Jesus is the only human being who has been tempted in every way, who's navigated all of the same pressures that you feel, and he has overcome them. Jesus felt the temptation toward feeling threatened, and he, he never gave into it. He never capitulated. He says, no, I overcome that. Jesus' life is full of examples where he could have just given in wholesale to feeling threatened. I mean, just as a metaphor, think about Jesus in the boat during the storm. Obviously, this, this storm was menacing. It felt very threatening to the apostles, and, and they're, they're kind of losing their cool, right? And they're, they're saying, we're going to die. And then Jesus is this picture of somebody who's cool. He's calm. He's, he's not threatened by this violent, menacing storm. And, and we see in relational ways, all kinds of ways, Jesus navigated hostile mobs, right? All the pharisaical scrutiny. He, he, he went to this tribunal, this, this mock court, this court that was totally stacked against him, and he wasn't threatened. People mocked him, they spat on him, they ridiculed him, and he wasn't threatened. He, he, he never gave in. And believe it or not, the, the Bible says you, by the power of the Spirit, get to have and experience and exercise the mind of Christ. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says you get to not operate in this world with your mind, your natural default settings. You get to appropriate for yourself daily the mind of Christ. Have the mind of Christ. By the power of the Spirit, in accordance with God's grace, you get to live not with your mindset, but with the mind of Christ. Furthermore, Jesus says, I'm never going to leave you, and I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to shepherd you through all of these threatening experiences in life. So actually, uh, Tim and I didn't plan this, but Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is the premier psalm of God's shepherding, loving care in our lives. And do you remember what, what it says in verse 5? We read it a few moments ago. Where is God going to prepare the feast for us? We all like feasts. God's going to prepare this table, this meal. It sounds lovely. But do you, do you see where God will prepare that meal? 
in the presence of our enemies. That's the kind of power that God wants to to prevail on us with. He says, I'm going to prepare a feast for you in the face of your enemies. That's That's how serious I am about you overcoming this core character flaw of always feeling threatened. It's no coincidence that that's where God wants to prepare a meal for us. Apart from Jesus, you'll do nothing against this sin. But with Jesus, you, you can overcome this. Now, if you, if you opt to do it on your terms, instead of following Jesus and adopting the mind of Christ, then I need to warn you, you will perpetually yield to all manner of unhealthy tactics and coping strategies and, and all kinds of unhealthy ways of fighting, clawing for control. So in verses 12 and 13, we see an example of that. Samson feels surrounded, so he decides to humiliate these, quote-unquote, companions that have been assigned to supervise him. And he thinks, first of all, I'm going to tell them this impossible riddle. So in the previous scene, we saw uh, Samson, because of the power of the Spirit, uh, he was able to not just survive a lion attack, but he, he ripped a lion into pieces. It was, it was almost effortless. It was easy. And then instead of flies and maggots inhabiting the carcass of this lion, uh, God supernaturally had bees cultivate honey. And so this is an impossible riddle. There's no way these Philistine companions can solve this riddle. Because this is like a once in, in, in a lifetime or once in all of human history event. This lion and these bees in the carcass of a lion. And so he has this very impossible sounding riddle that's going to help him feel like he wins He prevails over these 30 companions who are sort of surrounding him, and he's going to feel smarter than them. And then if he wins, he's made this wardrobe wager. And they have to give give Samson uh, 30 sets of clothes. And so clothes back then, and still this is true today, uh, clothes conveys status. Clothes is not just, you know, you're clothed, you have, you have, you know, protection against the elements. It's, well, they're, you know, it's name brand clothes. And the dominant uh, people group at this point in time are the Philistines. So they have, you know, Patagonia and Louis Vuitton. Like, they have the nice clothes. And so Samson says, if I win this, if I win this wager, I look smart and I have status. You know that scene in Goodwill Hunting where they go to the, the Havid Bar? Right? And, and Will mops the floor with the Harvard guy. I, I mean, in terms of intellect, Will Hunting is way, way smarter than this guy. But remember the last line in that exchange? The guy says, okay, yeah, you bested me in an intellectual sparring match, but here's the deal. That doesn't change the fact that you're from South Boston. And you're going to end up working at a fast food place. And you're going to serve me and my family when we go through the drive through at that fast food restaurant on our way to a swanky ski trip because you don't have status. So so what Samson's brewing here, what he's hoping here is to have both. He's going to be smarter and he's going to emerge with with status. 30 sets of Philistine clothes. That's what he's hoping for. And for three days, Samson's plan seems pretty effective. They can't figure it out. But then in verse 15, day four, the Philistine companions, they take things up a notch. They go to Samson's bride and they say, if you don't get this answer to the riddle, We are going to burn you. We're going to burn you alive. We're going to burn your father's house. They threaten her. And here's the thing. uh, Feeling threatened and fighting for control, you see that in a big way in this this story, uh, it can cause things to escalate very, very quickly. And and I want you to think about how that's true for your life. Think about how your, your 
palpable sense of feeling defensive and feeling threatened, coupled with your commitment to fighting for control, there are so many scenarios where you've, just seen, you've seen things just go crazy real quick. Things just derail in the blink of an eye. Things escalate and you're, you're wondering what is going on. And I'll tell you what's going on. Um, it's not sensible, it's not healthy, it's not constructive or edifying, whatever it is that's going on. It's that you feel threatened and you're fighting for control. That's the only explanation as to how we, we get into scenarios where you know, people are threatening to burn down the house <laughs> of Samson's bride-to-be. Right? And you've had experiences like this. You've been in fights with people where it just kind of blew up and you're wondering, what happened? How did, how did we get here? Why are they cussing me out right now? Why, why can we not figure out any semblance of, of like what might be constructive? What is going on? And this story says, you feel threatened. That's what's going on. And you are very committed not to focusing on Jesus or the way of the Spirit. You're very committed to your own sense of having control. That's what you're, that's what you're experiencing right now. And that's what God is displaying for us in this story so in verse 15, they say to Samson's bride, go coax your husband and get him to give you the answer to this riddle because we're getting humiliated here. I mean, have you agreed to marry this, this Hebrew guy so that we could all get humiliated and, and we could become impoverished? This is your fault, right? So they blame shift. They tell her that she's the problem for how insecure they feel and they threaten her. So now Samson's bride is obviously being threatened. She feels threatened because she's being threatened. So how will she react? Well, we see in verse 16, she goes to Samson sobbing and she says, you hate me. You hate me. You don't really love me because if you really loved me, you would have told me the answer to this riddle. You would have brought me into the loop. But then we read something very interesting in verse 17. It says that she's been crying like this and pressing Samson on this for seven days. Not, not starting on day four, but for the whole seven days of the feast, she's been, she's been talking to Samson about this. That means she's been fighting for this control even prior to the threat. And that's, again, something we can relate to. We're all sort of preemptively defensive, right? We go through life with our guard up, ready to defend ourselves because it's a scary world. There, there's a lot of threats out there. And so it's only wise, it's only common sense for us to always be checking in with how much control do I have? What are the potential threats? I need to try to get ahead of those. I always need to be vigilant. I always need to be monitoring what might threaten me. All the what ifs. And we're very anxious and we're very troubled by many, many things. Self-protection. Self-preservation. Fighting for control. That has to be the fixation, right? Everything in the world suggests that that has to be our obsession. Everything in our flesh naturally, intuitively thinks... I need self-protection. I need to fight for control. That has to be the fixation of my life. I mean, even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 10 says this. I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. Well, there you go. If, if Jesus says, I'm sending you into the world like sheep, which Tim did a great job of illustrating for us, you know, what sheep are capable of. Uh, and you're being sent into a world of wolves who are far more uh, deadly, you know, lethal, effective, efficient. You, I mean, you better be on edge. You better be vigilant. You better be chronically worrying. And it's interesting. Jesus in Matthew 10 goes on to say, so yes, be aware of the wolves, but, but the emphasis is never on fighting for control. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, yeah, you're going into the world as sheep amidst wolves, 
and you will be handed over to councils. You will be beaten. You will be flogged in synagogues. You will be betrayed even by close friends and relatives. You will stand before tribunals, but don't worry. The audacity of Jesus to tell us all this scary stuff. It's even scarier than you thought because apparently some of your own close friends and relatives will betray you. you who can you trust? And then Jesus says, but seriously, don't worry. Don't, don't be anxious and troubled. And then here's his reason, because the Spirit is with you. The Spirit, this not imaginary, but invisible friend. He's here right now, but none of us can see him. But he's real. He's actually with us, and he's powerful. He's God with us. He will be with you. And, and in these intense moments of crisis, he, he will be operative. He will give you what to say. He will guide you through that, that crisis, that really intense situation. It won't really be you primarily who's at work. It will be the spirit working in you and through you. And as surreal as that might sound to us, that's true. That's what Jesus said and that's what he meant. And that's actually the real spectacle that is always available to us and always ultimately available to us and on display for us in the Bible. The real spectacle of this passage is not all the drama and all the dysfunction and all of the hostility and animosity. You might think that's the real spectacle here. But the true spectacle, the true focal point and fixation of this passage is the work of the Spirit. You, I mean, you read what happens in this passage and you think the whole point has to be how, how everything unravels, everything escalates and spirals out of control and evil prevails and evil wins the day. That has to be the theme of, of this story and of this book because that's how it seems. I mean, that's what we feel when we read stuff like this and when we navigate stuff like this. And God says, no, that's not the fixation. That's not the focal point. Go back and look at verse 4. All of this, all of this is being sovereignly orchestrated by God. It's, it's all God who is seeking an opportunity to confront the Philistines. And in this scene, in this story, verse 19 is, is how God's getting at that. The Spirit of the Lord now comes upon Samson powerfully, and he goes down to Ashkelon, and he strikes down 30 men in this neighboring village, and he strips them of their uh, attire, their clothing, and then he takes that, that clothing back to these Philistines in Timnah, and then he storms off. And God says, believe it or not, this, this moment where you see my spirit doing something, this is, the, this is the big spectacle of this story. This is where I want you to aim your attention. And admittedly, this might seem kind of bizarre or anticlimactic. I mean, you might see this and think, this doesn't seem to be a big Spectacular moment. I mean, I mean, 30 Philistines in some random neighboring village, uh, they get struck down and, and stripped of their clothes to pay Samson's gambling debt. What? How am I supposed to embrace that as, as the truly uh, fantastic, mesmerizing work of God? And part of me just wants to say, I don't have a real squeaky clean, nice, neat answer for you. I just know that that's what God is telling us to put our attention on. This is God, at a minimum, moving a pawn on the chessboard. And if God, the master chess player, is making a move, you watch. You, you, you watch with bated breath and anticipation because you know, because he's God, he's up to something really, really big. Even if it doesn't seem big or impressive to you. Let your mind dwell on the work of the Spirit. 
As, as you navigate all the stories of Scripture, as you make your way through this very chaotic, broken, corrupt world, always, always let your mind most primarily dwell on the work of the Spirit. And that can be challenging. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, uh, the Spirit's work is, A, very mysterious. It's not, it's not something you intuitively tune into. And it's also, he says, it's like the wind. So you can't control it. You can't control the wind. You can't really even predict at what rate it will blow or precisely which direction it will be blowing. But that's the work of the Spirit. And, and you won't really understand what joy and life to the fullest is unless you grasp this. That the windy work of the Spirit, the subversive secret work of the Spirit is what God is always provoking you to be primarily fixated on. So let me end with this illustration. We went to, a group of us from ECPC went to Greece earlier this summer. And we went to this uh, gypsy community, the, the Roma community on the outskirts of Athens. And it's a slum. It is. There's sewage. There's trash everywhere. There's uh, a bunch of teenage girls who have babies just sitting out on porches. I mean, they've just strung up electrical wires from, from shanty house to shanty house. It's, it's a huge fire hazard. It's just... It's hard not to look at all of this trash and sewage and, and very dangerous electrical work and think, okay, this is the spectacle. I mean, how, how do you look at any of this and not just get totally fixated on all the problems and, and all of the just depravity and bad stuff? That's what is natural. That's what's intuitive. That's the fixation. This is the spectacle. Just this, the, the degeneration. But then we met this guy named Ivan. And Ivan took us into his, his little workshop, and uh, we saw this piece of art. It was Ivan's rendition of, of Van Gogh's Starry Night, but it wasn't a painting. What Ivan had done is he had gone out into the, the shanty town, the slums, the trash, all of the, the bad stuff, and he had picked up little pieces of trash. There's so much trash you would never notice that he had picked up any of it. He just selected some pieces of trash. And he took these pieces of trash back to his workshop, and he had configured it on, on this, this board uh, into this beautiful representation of Van Gogh's Starry Night. And that's what God's doing here. He's, he's getting involved in the, the trash, the nightmare of this, this series of stories in the book of Judges. And, and every theological system says, God, if he's truly holy, should never come close to, to such a nightmarish. God says, I'm, I'm going to venture into it. I'm actually going to incarnationally invest in it, and I'm going to take what looks just like complete wreckage and trash. And I, believe it or not, I'm going to make something beautiful. That's what I'm going to do. And, and you have the choice to be transfixed on either the trash, the wreckage, the drama, the dysfunction, or you can be transfixed on the redemption of God, the work of the Spirit, and the beauty that he is authoring and perfecting, even in the midst of such chaos and corruption. Let me pray and ask God to help us do that. We pray, Jesus, we pray by the power of the Spirit, and we pray with confidence and hope because we see all through Scripture, you are committed, you are invested in, in this world and in this life, which just feels so unhinged and chaotic at so many moments. And we pray that you would draw our attention to your work. Even if it just feels like a, a small moving of a pawn on a chessboard, we, we pray that even these stories of Samson 
as, as mystifying and paradoxical as they are, that, that we would be more and more drawn to this story of redemption that you're authoring. The work of your spirit as, it, as he windily moves his way in this world that is clearly broken and messed up. We pray that that's where our fixation would be. Ultimately, you tell us in Hebrews 2 to fix our eyes on Jesus who came and was crucified. The author and perfecter of our faith who pursued the cross even as the joy set before him. Though he definitely wrestled with, with that darkness and he scorned the shame, we could be saved. And then he rose from the dead. And right now, by faith, we believe he is preparing heaven for us. So God, lead us like the sheep that we are through, through this crazy world and uh, give us hope. Give us hope against hope. Give us a proper fixation on our King and Savior, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.